Welcome to another in our series of Kehillat Israel podcasts. This is a recording of Rabbi Amy Bernstein's weekly Friday morning Torah study. Like I said last time, um, this is why we read on the triennial cycle, because if I could get away with not having to teach this story, uh, obviously, that would be my preference. But we have to, and we have to confront it. We have to confront these texts. But, but more than that, um, as always, one of the things I love so much about being with you all is that I like to take the text back from how it's been interpreted. So you all are used to hearing this text presented a certain way. I'm not defending this story. I'm going to set it, as always, in its historical context, and I'm going to walk you through the text in detail so that we can try to get out what is the story really about from the Israelite author's perspective, not from our perspective. We'll get there. We'll get to our perspective. But we need to first understand, as always, Torah on its own terms. Torah in the world of the ancient Israelite people. What's going on here? And then we can have our, Carol Kleinman's going to have her reactions to it. That's fine. Uh, we all can. But <laughs> but what I'm saying is let's for, let's suspend anything we know about this story. Let's suspend anything we know about the word sodomy. Like, let's just forget anything we know um, because it's not true. Just like the Garden of Eden story, and I promise I'm going to show you in the text, it's not true that this is about sodomy. I don't care that this is where they got the word and where they made up the term from. I don't care. It, that's not what this is about. So, so if I say that, scratch everything you know about this story. What do we know about the, you know, the historical setting of this story? All right. Here's something you might not know. You know that in the creation world of the ancient Near East, you, there's a tree. There's something about a tree of life. There's something about a tree of knowledge. There's something about a serpent. There's something about uh, the monster of the sea, like, the, you know, that the, the god has to, or the goddess has to slay. There's lots of things that we know have to be there for the ancient Near Eastern creation world of stories and cosmology. We know there has to be a flood narrative because there's a flood narrative in every ancient Near Eastern culture. We're always asking, what is the Noah story? What is the Israelite flood story change about what we know about flood narratives in the ancient world? Right. We want to we want to look at what is the ancient Israelite reconstruction of that story? What's the point of how the Israelites tell the story and reconstruct and rewrite the story that everybody has? Actually, this is the same with this story, believe it or not. All right. Why do I say that? What, what, what is there a parallel in Ugaritic or Sumerian or you know, Babylonian literature? Not necessarily. But Nahum Sarna, um, who wrote the JPS commentary um, on the book of Genesis, uh, I long ago found uh, a library copy of his book, Understanding Genesis. So I'm going to be teaching from Nahum Sarna for the most part this morning. Nahum Sarna says that if you look at the way this story is referenced in other parts of the Bible, it is very clear 
that this was a story outside the biblical tradition that got brought in to the Bible. So it predates the writing of Torah. This story was probably a story in the Canaanite region because of the crazy ways it gets referenced in the rest of the Bible. I don't want to spend too long on that, but that is one of the ways that people identify stories that would have been pre-Israelite is that there's not like one way. If it's an Israelite story, only an Israelite idea, it's, it's referenced pretty consistently the same way. That's not the case with the story. Sometimes it's just Sodom. Sometimes it's Sodom and Gomorrah. Sometimes there's four cities, which include Zoar. Sometimes it's the plain cities. Sometimes, so you know, the destruction of the plain cities. So there, it's referenced in so many different ways that it's one of the literary indicators that this was an independent narrative that is taken over by the Israelites, already a Canaanite story, already all over the region, a well-known, well-attested story, and it's brought into the Israelite tradition. And as always, the Israelites are going to reconstruct the story in such a way that it suits their new, remember, new theology. Theology had been the same, different variations, different variants, different names for the same pantheon of gods, but you always have a storm god. You always have a goddess of the hearth. You always have a god of fill in the blank. So the gods were pretty consistent. Their names changed. Ashtarte, right? Ishtar. These are all names of the goddess of the sky, of the stars. Ishtar, Astarte, Asherah, right? You, you have that goddess. Her name changes depending on where you live in the neighborhood. This had been going on for a very, very long time. This paganism of the ancient Near East, a very long time. Israelite religion comes along and is a radical break with paganism. It is a revolution that the Jews create, the early Israelites create an understanding of a relationship with a deity, one deity, only one, that's not the main fact, but still, only one. There are no competing forces in the universe. There's one God. And that one God, this is big, this is big, that one God is not capricious. The one God is not capricious. The one God is just. The one God is compassionate. The one God does not act on human reality for no reason. That is what this story is about in a nutshell. It is a theodicy. It is a defense of the divine. In the ancient world, all over the ancient world, even after the Israelites, think about Greece, think about Rome. The gods were capricious. The gods did what they wanted to do. And it didn't matter why. You didn't know why. Because Zeus is mad at Hera. So he throws a lightning bolt and you're in the way. Oh, well, too bad. So sad. Right? The storm god gets angry about something and brings a storm and wipes out three villages. Oh, well, sorry. Right? It doesn't. This god is jealous of that god. And so takes a worshiper of that God and tortures him because I want to, and I'm mad, right? So that is, that is not 
the understanding that the Israelites had of their one God. All right. Nahum Sarna first asks the question, and I was like, oh, can I just skip this part? Um, asks the question, where is Sodom and Gomorrah? Like, w- if we have to try to place the ancient cities of Stom and Gomorrah, where do we, I swear I'll get to the text, Bert's okay. Um, we, we're, we're, we're looking, we, what are we talking about? And he says, we are looking at the area just below the Dead Sea. We are looking at a plain, P-L-A-I-N, a plain just below the Dead Sea. Do you remember a few weeks ago we read the plain, there was a war, a battle with Abraham and the kings? Maybe that was last week. Um, and it happens at the Valley of Shedim, which today, the Torah says, is the Dead Sea, right? That was an indicator to us that there was a plain at one time called Sidim that now was the Dead Sea. The northern part of the Dead Sea is much deeper than the southern part, which means the southern part is newer than the northern part. We have indications above the Dead Sea of cult sites, Canaanite cult sites that are large enough and fortified enough with enough material remnants that archaeologists have found to believe that they had to be sustained by a civilization that was wealthy enough and big enough to have this cult site, these cult sites up there on the hills above the Dead Sea. We have no indication of inhabitants up there, no indication of a city up there. So it must be that it was down in the valley that only Bedouins were up there, like going back and forth. Bedouins don't have permanent cult sites like that. So they were fortified to protect the sites from the Bedouins, right? So that when you had a major festival, you didn't have to worry about who was moving through there. You had these fortified cult sites. Um, yes, we know, Barry, it's very sad um, that the Dead Sea is drying up at the bottom part. Um, so, and it's true that the maps don't really show that, but it's true. It's drying up for lots of reasons, industry, uh, as well as, uh, changing climate. So, uh, so there's no permanent settlement up there, which means that who, who funded those cult sites? Probably down in the valley. So in the valley, there were probably some major cities that are now gone, that were in the valley of Sidim that are now gone. So the material relics that archeologists found, I'm reading from Sarna now, presuppose the existence of a local civilization of which not a trace has remained. These cult sites must have been sustained by the populace of cities which which once were situated in what is now the Southern abatement of the Dead Sea. At some time or other, occurred a great disaster that caused the waters of the Dead Sea to extend southward, completely submerging the entire inhabited area. What is most likely to have happened? We're going to look at the story. We're going to look at the narrative and see if we get any clues from that. But, but, but from the archaeological record, this happened way before the Israelite occupation. 
way before early Israel emerges in the region. So that means something catastrophic happened to those cities in the plain of Sidim, something absolutely catastrophic that caused the Dead Sea to move south and obliterate these villages. Either they were obliterated and the waters come in or, right, or they just get drowned. But let's look at the story because the story gives us some clues about what might have happened. So we're looking at chapter 19 of the verse of the verse of the book of Genesis. So we have two Malachim. We have two angels arriving in Sdom. So remember that Lot, Abraham's nephew, said a few weeks or maybe last week, a few weeks ago, whatever, they needed to part ways because their their cat their their animals were getting too numerous for them to stay together and feed them. So Lot looks down at the valley and sees amazing fertility and amazing vegetation, meaning there's a water source there. So he, ta- he wants to go to stone. Another indication, right, that, that things were different what, at, before the destruction of these cities, right? There, there's only salt and whatever around the Dead Sea, but there are springs of water around the Dead Sea, part of what feeds the Dead Sea. And um, so, so he, Lot has moved to Sdom because it had, a, it had a water source and a lot of vegetation. He, it looked really good to him. All right. So he's living in Sdom. So these two Malachim come to Sdom in the evening as Lot was sitting in the gate of Sdom. And when Lot saw them, he rose to greet them. He doesn't recognize them. And bowing low, his face to the ground. So two strangers are approaching the town in which Lot lives in the ancient world, in before even Israel, in the ancient world, before hotels, before you had a safe place to sleep at night if you're traveling, you go to a town, and it was the obligation of the town to host you as their guest. And still today, among the Bedouin, you get three days if you show up at a tent, you get three days of hospitality. And once you are hosted by someone in that culture, you become under their protection and they are to defend you against any kind of danger for three days, even to the extent of losing their own life. This is the only way you can travel in a region and be safe is that if everyone understands you have to take in strangers, you have to take in travelers, you have to take in guests and you are sacrificing even your own safety and the safety of your household to protect that guest. This is the only way it works to have people moving around um, in a time before, you know, Winnebago's. All right. So Lot being a good, you know, ancient Near Eastern guy says, please, my lords, turn aside to your servant's house to spend the night and bathe your feet. Then you may be on your way early. But they said, no, we will spend the night in the square. But he urged them strongly. So they turned his way and entered his house. He prepared a feast for them, which is what you do, and baked bread and they ate. So they are under Lot's protection. 
they had not yet lain down when the townspeople, the men of Sdom, young and old, all the people to the last man gathered about the house. Every single male resident of Sdom shows up outside of Lot's house. And they shouted to Lot, the townspeople, and said to him, where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may be intimate with them. Bring them out that we may know them. So Lot went out to them, to the entrance, and shut the door behind him. So he's going to go out and try to deal with the townspeople. He's shut the angels, the guests, inside his house and said, I beg you, my friends, do not commit such a wrong. It's not really a wrong here. This is ra. Don't do this ra. We just got finished with a story not long ago about eating from a tree, knowing the difference between tov and ra, good and ra, evil. He's saying to them, don't do this. You know it's evil. You know this is ra. Look, Hinena, I have two daughters who have not known a man. Let me bring them out to you, and you may do to them as you please. But do not do anything to these men, since they have come under the shelter of my roof. So he's offering his daughters instead of the two guests. But they said, stand back. They're not interested. He knows that on some level. He knows they're not interested in his daughters. His daughters have always been there. If they wanted his daughters, they would have come before. Stand back. The fellow, they said, came here as an alien, and already he acts the ruler. Now we will deal worse with you than with them. Here's another clue to what's really going on in the story. Lot is not from stone. He's not a local. He does the right thing by bringing these strangers into his home and offering them protection. And when the people of the village say, give give them to us, because we want to humiliate them and do terrible things to them for our fun, he says, no, even to the detriment of his own household, his own daughters, that's not what they want. Look what they say. He comes here as an alien and he's, he's going he's gonna to now act like he's a big shot. He's going to act like he's a macher. Well, we're going to deal worse with you, Mr. Busy, than your guests. This is all about power and humiliation and control. That's what this story is about. But the men stretched out, and we're going to go back to it, don't worry. But the men stretched out their hands and pulled Lot into the house with them and shut the door. So the Malachim are not afraid. He doesn't know they're Malachim, but the angels are not afraid because they're angels, right? So they open the door, reach out, grab Lot, pull him back in, and shut the door. And the people who were at the entrance of the house, young and old, they were struck with blinding light so that they were helpless to find the entrance, right? So a miracle happens and they are blinded and they can't find how to get into the house. Probably also they're a little freaked out that they've been blinded, presumably. Then the men said to Lot, whom else have you here? Sons-in-law, your sons and daughters or anyone else that you have in the city, bring them out of the place. So the Malachim are talking now to Lot and saying, 
uh, we're going to get out of here. And who else do you have with you? Who, who else is part of your household, part of your retinue? Because we need to get them out of here. For we are about to destroy this place because the outcry against them before the Lord has become so great that the Lord has sent us to destroy it. I want you to pay close attention to that verse. Pay close attention to that verse. It is not about this incident. Do you see that? We are about to destroy this place. Why? Look at the Hebrew, verse 13. Ki godla tsa'akatam et pnei yudhe Why are they going to destroy this place? Because the tsa'aka, the outcry has come, a big one has come before God. Those of you who have studied with me, those of you who have learned the Exodus story with me, do you remember? When is it that God acts to move to free the Israelites? Only once they let out a great tsa'aka, a great cry. The tsa'aka, you cannot translate this into English. A tsa'aka is an out is an outpouring of suffering and misery from people who have been oppressed. In general, the poor and the weak, the orphan, the widow, right? God says, I will act the second a tsa'aka comes before me from the widow and the orphan. And who's God going to act against? You, Israel. So we see it all over Torah. The use of tsa'aka is the cry of the weak and the vulnerable, the poor who have been oppressed through ra, through evil. This is why Sodom and Gomorrah are being destroyed. So Lot went out and spoke to his son-in-law, who, sons-in-law who had married his daughters and said, and it's, it's a curious thing. Where were his sons-in-law? Were they outside with the mob? Every man to the last man was out there. They're not in his household. Where are they? Are they out there with everybody else? Okay. That's an interesting question. And said, up, get out of this place. For yud is about to destroy the city. But he seemed to his sons-in-law as one who jests. <clears throat> mitzachek. He seems like a mitzacheker. Do you remember this word? Mitzachek, like litzachek, to play. So we get this word with Yitzchak. And we get this word with uh, Sarah, who sees that Esav is misacheking with, uh, sorry, that Ishmael is misacheking with her son Yitzchak, right? So we don't, so this word we see all over the place um, in Torah. Um, usually it has some kind of sexual connotation. So we don't know, it often does, like with Rebecca. Right? How does the king know that Rebecca is not Isaac's wife? He sees them misahaking on the roof, playing around. All right. So, um, does it have that connotation here? We don't know. But jests is not a good translation at all. There's something else going on and being implied. Like, is he trying to manipulate them? Is he trying to trick them? 
right? So it's not jests. He's not, they're not looking at him as a joker. They're looking at him like he's trying to mess with them. As dawn broke, the angels urged Lot on, saying, up, take your wife and your two remaining daughters, lest you be swept away because the iniquity of the city. So it looks like the sons-in-law did not make the cut. Still, he delayed, right? So the men seized his hand and the hands of his wife and his two daughters in God's mercy on him and brought him out and left him outside the city. All right, this is for Carol Kleinman. Why is Lot saved? Is it because he offered them his daughters and protected the guests? No. Lot is saved because God had chemla, had a loving response to Lot himself. Why? Doesn't say he earned it. Chemla is not earned. Chemla is what the princess feels when she takes Moshe out of the basket and he's crying. Chemla is what she feels and responds and saves Moshe's life out of Chemla. That is what Yudhe Vavhe does to Lot. Why? Most likely because he's Avraham's nephew. He's Avraham's nephew. Why did God choose Avraham? We had this conversation. Why did God choose Avraham? We don't know. God loves Avraham. Period. Period. You don't need a reason for Chemla. You don't, it's not logical, Chemla. The princess should have drowned that baby. Her father, the god, the king of Egypt, ordered it. She should have killed the baby. Why didn't she? Out of Chemla. Out of this response of the heart, of love, of being moved by something that is vulnerable and is about, you know, in, in these two cases, to suffer. And God feels that for Lot because of Avraham. When they, brought, when they had brought them outside, one said, flee for your life. Do not look behind you, nor stop anywhere in the plain. Flee to the hills, lest you be swept away. But Lot said to them, Adonai, right? My Lord, you have been so gracious to your servant and have already shown me so much kindness in order to save my life. I cannot flee to the hills, lest the disaster overtake me and I die. Everyone knew these two cities were destroyed. Everyone knows that story. Everyone knows. So we're getting now our Israelite animation of the characters from that city and the reason the cities are destroyed. Look, that town there is near enough to flee to. It is such a little place. Let me flee there. It is such a little place and let my life be saved. Meaning surely there's not a lot of danger there. It's a tiny little podunk town you know, in Southeast Alabama, like who's going to bother me? Let, let me just get there and then I'll be safe. And he answered him very well. I will grant you this favor too, right? So this, these are all favors that are being done for Lot. I will not annihilate the town of which you've spoken. So that one will be spared so you can get there and feel safe. Hurry, flee there, for I cannot do anything until you arrive there. I'm not allowed to destroy the cities until you're safe, right? This is another clue that it's not that Lot earned it. It's that it was already decreed because of God's chemla that Lot could not be destroyed. It, 
That's already decided. I can't do anything, says the Malach, until you get there. All right. So the town is called Tso'ar. As the sun rose upon the earth and Lot entered Tso'ar, Yudhe rained upon Sodom and Gomorrah, sulfurous fire from Yudhe Vavhe, Mina Shemaim, from the heavens. So, how are the towns destroyed? Sulfurous fire comes from the heavens. When we talk about fire and brimstone, here is where it comes from. Sulfurous fire comes from the sky. God annihilated those cities and the entire plain and all the inhabitants of the cities and the vegetation of the ground, which would explain why it was no longer, right, a great place by the time the people who are writing the story are writing the story. Lot's wife looked back and she thereupon turned into a pillar of salt. Fatihi Nitziv Melach. She becomes a, we've, you, you know this word, Nitzavim. Atem Nitzavim Hayom Kuchem. Y'all stand here today. And I always go back to what does stand here mean? It, this is not La'amod. It's right. Atem um, Nitzavim. You are here like pillars. Remember, we talked about you erect a pillar. That's the word here. It doesn't say she turned into it. All of a sudden she's, she's erected. Melach. She's an, she's a, a statue of Melach of salt. Any of you who have been to the dead sea understand this image because you have seen salt formations at the dead sea. Most likely there was one in antiquity that looked very much like the figure of a female right? It would make complete sense when people said, wow, look at that. That looks an awful lot like a woman. Like, well, what could have happened? <laughs> right? So here's, here's our story. Vayashkem Avraham Baboker. Avraham does this because he is righteous, because he loves Yudhei Vavhei. Um, he gets up early in the morning to do what he's supposed to do, right? This is when he's going to, in this Parsha, the Akedah in this Parsha, the binding of Isaac's in this Parsha. When God tells him to sacrifice his son, he gets up early in the morning, rushing to fulfill the will of Yudhei So here we are again. Avraham gets up early in the morning, not because he's a morning person, not because he wants a little quiet time before the rest of the house gets up. No, he gets up to serve Yudhei in eagerness. So he gets up early in the boker and he goes, Elamakoma share Ahmad Sham at Pene Yudhevavi. He goes to the place where he had stood at Pene Yudhevavi before the face of the divine. And looking down towards Stom and Gemarah and all the land of the plain, he saw the smoke of the land rising like the smoke of a kiln. Remember that. Sulfurous fire from the sky. And smoke everywhere. Remember that. This is important. Thus it was that when God destroyed the cities of the plain and annihilated the cities where Lot dwelt, God was mindful of Avraham and removed Lot from the midst of the upheaval. Carol Kleinman, do you hear this? God removes Lot because of Avraham, not because Lot did what Lot did. Because of Avraham, and God loves Avraham and spares Avraham's blood 
kin, his blood relation. In the ancient world, the child, the son of the patriarch's sibling is sacrosanct. That relationship was a very close relationship, right? Other than your own kids, these would be the the next generation people that you are closest to. And often they were like your own children. And many of you I know can relate to that, I'm sure. You know, you don't have your just your kids, you have your nieces and nephews. Some people don't even have children. They have nieces and nephews. Remember, Avraham has been has been barren. He's not had, right? It's not like he has 12 kids, right? He had Yishmael with Hagar and he had Yitzchak late, very late in life. Lot has been presumably like a son to Avraham. Lot went up from Zoar and settled in the hill country with his two daughters. He was afraid to dwell in Zoar and he is, and his two daughters lived in a cave. Um, I don't, I'm not sure how much I want to go through that next story. <laughs> they think everyone's gone. They think everyone's destroyed and they don't have children. Their husbands didn't make it. And so they seduce their father while he's drunk and they wind up having children who become nations in the area. So a rather insulting ancestor story for the peoples who come from, from that story. Okay, but I don't want to go to that story. I want to stay with our story. One, one hard text is enough for the day. All right. All right. If you have two cities that have been obliterated, and that has been the Canaanite understanding, because it happened. Let's say it happened. That something catastrophic happens, destroys the cities of the plain, and the Dead Sea moves south. What could have happened? What are the possibilities that could have geologically changed the nature of that plain so dramatically? We know Israel is on the Syro-African rift, right? We know this. If you know anything about Israel, you know that it's prone to earthquakes, This is what has destroyed so many cities in Israel. We've had this conversation a few times, right? That what what often happens in Israel is that things are destroyed not by war, but by earthquake. Um, Mehmet's asking about volcanoes. We don't even need a volcano. Often often with um, earthquake comes lightning, which would be what? Oh, fire from the sky. Lightning often happens with an earthquake. When you go to the Dead Sea and you, when you talk about sulfur, it's already there. Sulfur, anybody been in the Dead Sea, right? It smells like rotten eggs, right? Because of the sulfur. The other thing that are, that's there is bitumen. However you say that, bitumen, B-I-T-U-M-E-N, right? Which is people flammable, There is sulfur, there's bitumen, and there are other things in the Dead Sea that are flammable in that area. So if you have fire from the sky with a major earthquake, it is very likely that things caught on fire. And if you think that's a stretch, then I don't know what you're doing in Southern California, (laughs) right? Like, 
What do we get worried about? What do we get so freaked out about here when it's too dry for too long and the Santa Ana winds come, right? We are scared to death that lightning is going to, and it does, it strikes all the time. It strikes the ground. What we're worried about is it's going to strike something that ignites. And when that happens and you have the perfect conditions for it, you have a massive fire, massive right? Those of us who live through how many of them, right? Massive amounts of fire and massive amounts of smoke. That's what we saw Avraham see. He sees smoke on the plains filled with smoke. Okay. Well, what does that mean? It means these cities were on fire is what it means. So massive earthquake, massive geological shift destroys, you know, they didn't have high rises, but like destroys things. Um, water, presumably, you know, like it is going to start moving. Um, but, but before that, things are on fire because fire came from the sky and boom, right? Blew up, blew up these cities. This is the description that we have And most likely, right, this is a real event that happened. Now we have to ask, what is the Israelite reconstruction of the story? If you have to have the story of the cities that got destroyed, what do the Israelites do with that? The Israelites, A, make this a story about Avraham the patriarch. So they're going to attach Avraham the patriarch to this story. Okay, that's number one. Number two, do you remember what Avraham does? We didn't read that part, but do you remember what happens when God decides to tell Avraham that God is going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah? What happens? Barry? Huh? He argues. Avraham argues. Now, if God didn't want an argument, why would God tell Avraham what God's about to do? This is about the covenantal relationship. This is about a God that Avraham gets to hold to standards. What does Avraham argue? Will not the God of justice do justly? This is the point of the story, people. The cities get destroyed. Everyone knows that. Duh. What, why do the, what, how do the Israelites tell this story? This is a story of the just God that Avraham gets to hold accountable to God's own own justice, own measure of justice, and argues no justice. with God. This is about the relationship. No Say it again, Barry. No justice without lawyers. You, you no justice without lawyers. God sets Avraham up to be a defense attorney, right? This is a setup in a good way. God sets it up so that Avraham argues with God. And God is justified in destroying Sodom and Gomorrah because there's not even one righteous person in the city. Lot acts against the morals of the city. How do we see that? Because they come looking to terrorize his guests. Um, We're going to look at some texts about like um, why this particular one. Um, 
another, so that's number one, the God of justice is not capricious. God does not destroy these cities because they chose a green flag instead of a blue flag and God prefers green. God destroys the city because the city is Ra. Ra deserves destruction. And God tells Israel plenty of times, y'all do Ra and what's going to happen? Same thing. This is the universal God. The Israelites understood this God was the God of the people of Stom and Gomorrah also. This is the universal God who will only act out of justice. Only, ever. Okay, so it's a theodicy. It's a defense of God. But it's also a statement against Canaanite paganism. It is a statement against God being capricious, God forbid. Chas v'shalom. This God acts Justly, Avraham is set up to argue that case with that God. And that God responds to Avraham. Okay, find me 50. Avraham says, well, wait a minute, wait a minute. What if there's not 50? But what if there's, right? So, and God says, okay, find me 40. Find me, find me 10, <laughs> right? So God answers. So Avraham does the right thing in arguing with this God. Okay, so so a couple, so we already have a few reasons, uh, not reasons. We we have a few ways that we can see how the Israelites tell the story, how they reconstruct the story, and what's the point? And the point is that that the universal God will do justly. God is the God of everybody, but further than that, Avraham argues for pagans. Avraham, the founder of the religion. That will is a rebellion against polytheism, the founder of the monotheistic breakaway from paganism, argues on behalf of the pagans. Yes, he acts justly. He shows mercy and compassion for the very culture that early Israel is breaking away from. Okay, that is another point. Of the story. The point of the story is not what was going to happen to the guests. That is just another symptom of the evil of this city. The worst thing the Israelites could think of to have them do is want to plan on everyone in the town planned on mauling guests that are under someone's protection. Number one, Number two, if you're going to do that, what's the worst way in the world to do that? To men, make them assume the female position in coitus. Make a man in the ancient world take on the role of the female in sex. That is how you can most humiliate and most assault men in the ancient world. We know this. We know this from many different sources. This is not about the fact that they wanted to have homosexual sex with the guests. That is not the point of the story. The point is they wanted to humiliate and violate, aggressively violate men who were guests under protection in the worst way possible in the ancient world. Now, This is not going to make Carol feel any better. You cannot allow that. You cannot allow that. 
And when he offers his daughters, they have no interest, right? Because it's not about sex. He knows that. He knows they're coming to humiliate and violate. Um, I can't even think of another word, but you, you know, you can think of right words. Um, his guests. The way you do that is put them in the woman's position in intercourse. All right, let me stop there because I see, oh my gosh, 19 comments in the chat. Okay. Everything is about sex except sex, says Emmalinda. Sex is about power. Thank you very much, Emmalinda. Yes. Yes. Everything's about sex except sex. Yes, that's right. Sex is about power, particularly in the ancient world. It's all about power. And we know rape is always about power. And that's what this is. This is a story of attempted gang rape. That's how raw the city is, is that guests who deserve protection, right? And, and have been offered hospitality and protection are, be, are they demand that they be brought out for gang rape. That is about power, always. And control and humiliation, right? And, and all that stuff. Okay. All right, Jody, why don't you talk while I try to figure out how I can see all of you. <laughs> Actually, it was Barry who raised the question, but I'm curious to know. I thought the daughters were virgins. How can they have, have been married? Well, remember, you have different stages of marriage. You have betrothal. Once you're betrothed, you belong to, to somebody and need a get, right? Even in rabbinic Judaism, right? Betrothal and chuppah used to be separated by a year, Oh, okay. So when they said the sons-in-law that are outside, okay. The daughters have been promised to them. The, the documents have been signed. They just haven't moved out of Lot's house yet. They haven't done chuppah yet. Okay. Okay. They've done betrothal. They've not erusin. They've not done nisuin. They've not done the chuppah. Today they do that together in the same evening. Say it again, Barry. Today they're, they're doing it, the, the Jewish ceremony of the wedding does the betrothal and the wedding in the same evening. Nachon, right? Which is why I had to tell them that it used to not be the same, <laughs> right? It used to be separated by a year or, or so, whatever. But they, so they were in the, the state of having been promised, but they have not yet, it hasn't been consummated yet. Okay. Who else has questions for me? Margo? It's a question. Okay. Um, how would a male reconstructionist rabbi would he be able to describe the uh, this story to his his group the same way that you have been able to? If he is smart and well read, yes. <laughs> <laughs> right, right, yes. This is how we were taught. This is how we were taught Torah in our seminary. And how to teach Torah. Well, it's how we were taught Torah. How people teach is up to them. But the whole point is to know the background of the text in its context. Yes, we we had to read and learn and know the ancient Sumerian, Akkadian, and Ugaritic myths. We had to know and read the the flood story from Ugarit and Sumer. We had to know those. Because otherwise, you can't know Torah if you don't understand 
the literature of the ancient Near East, the laws of the ancient Near East, the language used in the legal texts of the ancient Near East. You cannot appreciate or understand Torah without understanding all of that, right? And then, of course, you want to bring the interpretation forward, which we're going to do about Lot's wife. Um, But, right, that whole, yes, the whole way Reconstructionist rabbis are taught and taught to teach is to understand the text in its setting, understand the parallels in the ancient Near East, and then understand what is the Israelite reconstruction of those stories. What's the agenda of the biblical author? Um, Because otherwise it doesn't really make a lot of sense. It looks like it drops out of nowhere. And that's not fair to the text. And it's not fair to the student, right? Because otherwise you're just like, what? Like who... Who would write this stuff? Well, if you know you have destruction of two cities on the plane that blew up, you have to ask why. Why did they get destroyed? Who destroyed them? The gods? Well, that's the story in the ancient world. Well, Israelite story is, uh-uh, not, not the gods. The one just God destroyed those cities because they were raw, because they were evil. There is a moral point to our story that did not exist in the pagan world. This is a monotheistic moral story. And we have Avraham acting morally and then demanding that the one God act morally. That is the point of the Israelite telling of the story that everybody had in the ancient world. All right, Mehmet? Um, We all know... um that this whole chapter is being read from uh, the perspective of condoning homosexuality uh, um, from all sorts of orthodox um, uh, uh, circles. Uh, either it is Judaism or Christianity or Islam. It, they, they all uh, look at the same from that perspective. When, when did Near Eastern cultures start condoning homosexuality? Wait, so condoning means to support. I think you mean condemning. Yeah, sorry, condemning. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So um, when did the ancient world condemn homosexuality? Early, because it, men would not put themselves in the position of women, right? It, heteronormativity was assumed in the ancient Near East. There were, there were people who were exceptions to that. So you could have cultic people who were exceptions, some acts of homosexuality were tolerated in the cult as part of you know, the religious rights, but, and, and, and a gender crossing figure, right? So a, a shaman who could do gender, gender violating dress, behavior, whatever. So sometimes a sex act, a, a homosexual sex act, sex act was okay there. Um, but in general, heteronormativity is just assumed in the ancient Near East. Um, I don't, I don't know earlier than that. I'm, I don't know the region earlier than, let's say, the Bronze Age. I don't, I don't really know what would have happened. I don't know that we have a record even. Um, but like as we know, later cultures were were fine with it, right? Greece, Greece was fine with it, right? So, um, so it doesn't stay the case. Um, and so actually it goes from condemning to condoning, mm. right? That region goes from condemning homosexuality to condoning it um, in, in some way. Um, but it was 
a male assumed power and, and for another male to, to be subjected to penetration was humiliating and it was a sign of weakness. And so that is why we see in Leviticus, a man shall not lie with another man as he lies with a woman. You don't play the role of a woman. That's the violation. That's the problem, not the sex act. Right? What about female to female law? Any indication about that in I asked in you this text? question in Yeshiva High School. When I was in Yeshiva and I was like 16 and already with girls, I said, excuse me, um, what about if there is, you know, like the, I said, well, what about women? Right. It only says a man shall not lie the lyings of a woman with another man. Well, what about women? So the, the rabbi like choked on his spit, like turned absolutely purple. Well, Rachel, my Hebrew name, Rachel, it's real. And well, and like he could barely get out the words and finally says with women, Rachel, you have to understand with women, there's no penetration. And I said, really? So that's the only thing that's about it. Like, so so from an Orthodox perspective, the answer was there's no penetration. So it doesn't really matter. And of course I wanted to raise my hand and go, uh, that's not exactly accurate, but, um, but it wouldn't have mattered. Cause the point is the only penetration that matters is one with a penis right? Like that, that's the only penetration that, that the system cares about is that with a penis. Um, and then, but in rabbinic law, later I learned in rabbinic law, women are not allowed to have sex with other women. You ready? Why? It's unseemly. One shouldn't allow one's wife to have sex with other women because it's unseemly. It's, it's just not done. Right. So there is no prohibition on women having sex with women. You want my opinion about why? Because the rabbis don't care. The patriarchy didn't care what women do with women. Who cares? Like good for you, gals. Yeah, right. Knock yourselves out. Whatever. Like, just don't interrupt me while I'm working. Like, so like we got to pass. Right? Gotta exactly. Pass. So I, I really think truly, I believe it's because it just didn't matter. They, there's no need to prohibit it. It's not dangerous. It, who cares? <laughs> right? Like women aren't important enough, right? The, the, women's sexuality is only important and consequential when, it, when it's about another man having access to the sexuality that a man controls in a woman, the father, the husband, right? Then it's a problem, right? Her sexuality is an issue only when it can be encroached upon by another man. Otherwise, women's sexuality, like, who cares? Yeah. Here I come. It seems, it seems like women, they don't really care about women, except as baby makers. I mean, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll go along with your, you know, his daughters and the whole that kind of thing. But. They, uh, and and the business about turning his wife into a pillar of salt, you know, it, they're just it just feels like women women were um, handmaid's tales <laughs> people. Okay. Okay. Yeah. 
Okay. Um, <laughs> All right. Am I? Sure. Yeah. Um, I I seem to remember something that uh, gay women aren't allowed to marry a priest from the Talmud or something. I I don't think there is such a term, gay women. There's not, there's not such a term. There isn't such a term. They call them misolelit. They call them what? Misolelit. Misolelit. A woman who lies with other women. I, I had to have to check. They, they, I don't know. I don't know that source, and I don't know that term. Um, well, stuff stuck in my memory. I don't know. Yeah, so <laughs> I, I don't know. But, but, but let's say it's there, and let's say that's true. It's not gay. It can't be. It can't mean that. It. It, they didn't understand gay. There was no such thing. They maybe it's Miss Olelet, women who fondle other women, whatever. What it's unseemly. It, you don't want a priest marrying somebody who routinely does things that are unseemly, right? That that would uh, make sense to me if that if that's what's there. But they do not have a concept of gay or homosexual in the rabbinic literature. There's there's not a classification, uh, right? They. It's all about behavior. You, maybe a Kohen is not allowed to marry someone who's been known to do this behavior. That's very possible because you wouldn't want that, right? The priest's wife, really, yeah. right? All right. Um, I so- also remember, uh, remember my high school teacher who was uh, ultra-Orthodox, and he said, okay, now, now I have to teach you something because I work for the Ministry of Education about the Ugaritic uh, myths and stories, uh, et cetera. But you know, I, I only do that because I'm, I'm an employee of theirs. So I, I don't really want to teach this, but I have to kind of thing? I have to, yeah. <laughs> yeah, believe me, my rabbis didn't want to talk about it either. All right, okay. Um, does it have to do with spilling seed? Does what have to do with spilling seed, Dana? Um. You know, a man with a man, you know, they don't appreciate it because, you know, it's a waste of seed. Well, so certainly that's part of heteronormativity, right, is intercourse is for procreation. So I'm I'm sure it's not unrelated. um, But but with men, there there is a level of um, there's another level other than just the sex act right? That's involved. It's about power and the, the, the power relationship for a man to put himself in the disempowered role of the female during sex. That's more important even than wasting seed. But, but yes, I'm sure like if you're going to do it, you should be doing it right towards procreation. Um, but anyway, I want to look at, um, before we close, I just want to look at this, to, to Carol's point about a, a pillar. There's of also stuff. a question about the innocent children, perhaps women. Um, but I think we discussed this in many, many occasions where they are just victims of the sins of men. Yes. Yes. Of course. Right? Children wind up being the victims of terrible decisions by grown-ups. Look anywhere in the world and tell me it's different, <laughs> right? These people are explaining the world as it is. And the world as it is, children suffer because of the decisions of adults. Selfish, 
adults, sometimes well-meaning, but nonetheless, it's adults who create the society and the world in which children suffer. This is absolutely true, even in our time. All right, so let's go to, I made a text sheet for you that has some of these uh, thoughts on it. So this is from Sarna. Um, This is about the fact that it's not about homosexuality. This is from John Shelby Spong. If you haven't read it, it's an amazing book, Rescuing the Bible from Fundamentalism. And the reason I have it here is you should give it to anybody who wants to take the Bible literally. Because obviously, Lot's behavior, right, is not is not the paradigm of what we want to see, right? So, um, so they pick one part of it to say this is the Bible talking about homosexuality, but they don't want to talk about the other part that Lot, who offers his daughters for gang rape, is spared, right? All right. So, this is for you, uh, Carol Kleinman. This is from a book called Torah Queries which is queer uh, commentary on the Torah, a great book. This is called Looking Back to Look Forward. I gave you a little chunk of it. I am struck by Lot's wife act of looking back, which still calls to my mind the value, the centrality of such an act in and for Judaism and Jews, the act of looking back. Perhaps the lesson in Lot's wife's death is that it reminds us of the risks, the dangers involved in looking back lives are at stake. Perhaps what might be considered problematic in Lot's wife's looking back is neither the act of looking back itself, nor that she does so ostensibly against divine command, but the inability to see things differently. We need to see with better eyes. If we do not constantly come up with new interpretations, which require continual looking back and seeing anew, the text and its readers stand in danger of becoming pillars of salt, casual remnants, memorials, whether enduring or fleeting to a past long since gone. My point is not to attribute blame to Lot's wife or to minimize the only act with which the Bible enlivens her. To the contrary, I want to use her act of looking back despite its fateful consequences as a call for contemporary readers both to look back again and again and to be able to see things differently so that we might move forward. For me, this is the point of her looking back and ossifying. I love this scene. I love this scene. Don't look back at destruction. It won't serve you. Don't go there. Move forward. Go forward. If you keep looking back, you will freeze. You will be stuck in place. This is a beautiful message from Torah. If you are not willing to let go of what's falling away, if you are not willing to let go of what's been, you cannot live and move forward forward. You stay stuck in place. I don't think this is a punishment, Carol. I think this is a consequence. How many people do you know who cannot move forward? We were at the pool the other day and these two guys, they're in their like 
early 60s, all they could talk about was their high school football days. It was pathetic. It was so sad to me. And I'm not saying this with judgment. I'm saying this. I felt badly for them. That's all they could talk about. Their glory days when they were in their late teens. So do you know people like this who look back so much that they are completely frozen in space and time? They are unable to move forward and they're unable to live. They exist. You can see their shape and form, but it's like a pillar of salt. It, it's not alive. I think this is a, a compelling image from Torah about the consequences of when we get stuck in the pain of the past. Stone was not a good place, people, right? It's not like they were looking back on this wonderful, amazing set of grandparents that they adored, that those memories one can take with one. They look back on, on an evil, rotten, violent civilization that's being destroyed and they cannot let it go. It's the pain, the ugliness of the past. When we can't stop looking at it, we freeze in place. Yes, they, they couldn't let it go. Now, I get it. That's where they grew up. It's all they knew. But guess what? That's the case with most of our pain. I don't know about y'all, but the pain that I carry that's the worst is the pain that I got from people who loved me. People who loved me. We have to be ready to let it go. Doesn't mean we don't feel, doesn't mean we don't remember. But if we keep looking back, we freeze in place. That is not what we want, but that's the truth. That's the world we live in. You've been listening to Rabbi Amy Bernstein's Friday morning Torah study from Kehillat Israel in Pacific Palisades, California. For more information, go to our website, www.ourki.org